It's a genuine pleasure to be here to speak about someone who was my all-time hero. If it were not for James Cohn, I would not be a theologian of any sort, let alone a black liberation theologian. A long time ago when I had hair and a much smaller waistline, um, I want to be a comedy writer. Uh, some people will tell you that I still write comedy, although it's not pretends to be theology. But, um, but James Cohn literally changed my life. And so what I'm going to do in the next 30 minutes or so is just to spell out what I think are some of the key ideas and why I think he still matters. He still matters because the questions that he was wrestling with first started right in the late 60s. I wonder that we are still wrestling with now in our present epoch in 2022. Like Cohn, I am the descendant of enslaved Africans. Reddy, which is my father's name, which I'm very proud to hold, it's not an African name, it's a Scottish name. And history s seems to suggest that when the Scots were often deported from Scotland around 1745, 1746, during the Highland Clearances, when they tried to rebel against the Hanoverian government and lost, many were sent into exile. Many were sent to the Caribbean. And they were sent as, I guess, people who would be under domination of English colonialism, sent into exile, but then realised that once they were in exile, they were actually white. Something that they probably would have never thought of when they were back in their native Scotland, but they were suddenly white. And being white, therefore, gave them a level of privilege and advantage that still exists to this day that then allowed them then to participate in the slave economies of the Caribbean. So at some point in the past, someone called Reddy from Perthshire, West Scotland, owned one of my ancestors and owned them in the sense in which you would own chattel, you would own animals, you would own things. They're not people, they're not sentient beings. They're creatures that have been, have their humanity taken off them and they are reduced to objects. It's interesting that if you read older books, people will talk about slaves. What has changed in the last 10, 15 years is that we've changed our language because we, we now recognise that these people were never slaves and they never accepted themselves as slaves. They were enslaved human beings, enslaved Africans. James Cohn was born in the American South in 1938. He died in 2018, aged 79, and he wrote his first book, which I'll say a little bit about in a moment, in 1969, called Black Theology and Black Power. His last book, which I had the honour of being asked to endorse, was published a few months after he died, which was his autobiography, said I wasn't going to tell nobody. And he was writing this book whilst he was dying of cancer. And the book came out three months after he died, but I was sent an advanced copy and Cohn had left instructions to his publisher for a dozen of his favourite scholars to read the advanced text and to endorse it. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon of being English when I was on the train when I got the email and opened the email, read the email and burst into tears. 
on the train. And of course, everyone then, of course, actually does that classic English thing where like, they'll pull out their newspapers and their books and, and, and they're pretending that, you know, like they're not seeing this man on the corner weeping. And eventually, like this old woman, bless her, came across and said, Dear, are you all right? Um, so, can I get you a cup of tea? Which, of course, is the answer to everything. The answer to every existential problem is the proverbial cup of tea. Unfortunately, I hate tea, so I, um, so I said, no, actually, I said, <laughs> no, no, I said, I'm, I'm really sorry, but actually, it's tears of joy, to be honest with you. And she said, oh, wow. And she says, um, so can you explain why? And I thought, oh, good, good, good crumbs, okay. So, so I tried to explain who James Cohn was. She was no more the wiser after five minutes. And, but that was a, a huge privilege to write some words to his final book. And in many respects, what makes that book quite significant is because Cohn was a very private man. He didn't talk much about his life. He was always focused on the work. And so what you get reading his autobiography is him saying something about his backstory. Why did he come to become the preeminent? And in many respects, the inventor of black liberation theology as an academic discipline. As an academic discipline, it's important to say that because Cohen would have always been clear that he did not invent black theology. Black theology was invented by ordinary enslaved peoples. So one of my favourite stories comes from a book written by an African-American historian, a guy called Albert Rabito. And in 1978, Rabito wrote a book called Slave Religion. And the slave religion, what he did was he went back into the archives and particularly he looked at some of the slave narratives that were written by enslaved people. So towards the end of slavery, so kind of um, into the early part of the 19th century, it wasn't not uncommon for more liberal white northerners to begin to ask enslaved Africans to tell their story, to share something of their experience. And so these narratives were written down often with the benefit of hindsight, and so there's lots of questions as to their authenticity and whether the events that have been narrated were literally true. But of course, what most of us know is that there are truths that transcend whether something is literally true or not. And, and, and in one story that Rapporteur tells, he talks about this encounter in North Carolina, circa about 1740. And what you have is a white slave owner who is an evangelical Anglican. He's been, he's been converted through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's what is sometimes called like the Second Great Awakening. Evangelical revival of the 1740s, that's what helps bring into birth Methodism, which is obviously part of my tradition in terms of Wesley's heart being strangely warmed. So this slave master has a number of slaves and the slaves were often divided into two camps. There were those who were what's called house Negroes, those worked in the house and they were slightly more trusted, given slightly more responsibility, still enslaved, however. I mean, that's the important thing to hold on to. They're still enslaved, but they have more comparative freedom compared to those who worked in the fields, who did the much more heavy work of essentially helping to... Helping to generate cash crops for sale for profit for their so-called masters. And the story goes on this particular occasion, this particular slave master 
He's mindful of the fact that of his age and he's thinking about his death and his mortality and calls this particular enslaved African to him who is his most trusted and favoured enslaved person and says to him, I have been mindful of the service that you have given all these years in my household. And I've also realised that you had a very important role within the community of enslaved people because this person is not ordained in the traditional sense, but he's emerged as a leader, as one of the leading preachers on this plantation. Also has been transformed by the power of the Spirit. And says, and as his master says to him, I've left instructions in my will that when you die, I would like you to be buried with my family in the family plot. Now that's a major concession because this person is really, is not a human being, he's an animal, according to the, the rubrics of plantation life. But however, he says that because I have noted your steadfastness and the way in which you have served me, I want to make this provision in my will. This enslaved person, Vabitor describes it acutely, looks at the floor, not in the eye, because to look your master in the eye would be seen as an act of defiance, so he doesn't do that. He keeps his head low, bowed, and says, Master, you believe yourself to be a Christian, and I accept your word that this is a generous offer, but I have to decline it. The master is somewhat at best perplexed and at worst actually probably quite outraged. And so demands a, and demands a reason and says, well, why are you turning down this offer? And so the enslaved person says, well, master, when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, you and all your folk are going to hell. And when the spirit of death comes to take you to hell, I do not want to be taken up by mistake because I was buried in the wrong place. And to be taken to hell with me. Because he says this, he says, you, you believe yourself to be a Christian and you think God has ordained everything that's happened, including my enslavement. I believe in that same God and I believe that, that this God does not will this. Both of us cannot be right. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. And I believe you are wrong. And I believe that because you're wrong, every one of you is going to go to hell. Robert o says, this is the birth of black theology. Because what this enslaved person is doing, and he's a nice fancy academic term, but hey, I'm an academic, that's what we do. We like to use big terms. He creates what's called an epistemological break. What that simply means is, in normal speak, he creates an alternative form of authority by which he will judge what is right and what is wrong. See, up to that point, everything is stacked in favour of this slave master. Slavery is entirely, it's entirely embedded with Christianity and the church, and for the most part, most, most of the churches, particularly the Church of England, but not just the Church of England, are all culpable of colluding with it. There was even a famous case where in 1710, 
So Christopher Codrington, on the estate of Barbados, a slave owner dies and leaves his estate to an Anglican missionary organisation, SPG, the Society for the Propagation. Yes, Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, which is now USPG. And lives on this estate in 1710. Now, you would have thought from our vantage point, a missionary organisation that, that, that takes possession of a slave estate, the first thing they would do is to set the slaves free. No, they don't do that. Too much money to be made. So they still run the estate, a slave estate, as a missionary Christian organisation. In the midst, around the same time as, as this great awakening, a number of enslaved people, they themselves are converted, probably someone maybe like this individual. And in their conversion and in their baptism into the church, a number of them say, well, clearly, we believe or we've been told that there is freedom in Christ. If there's freedom in Christ and we have now become Christians, clearly we must be free. The slave masters, the planters say, hey, not so fast. And they're sent to London for a ruling. And the Bishop of London makes a ruling and sends about the ruling and says, tell these enslaved people there's freedom in Christ in spiritual terms only. They are still subject to the law, are still subject to white authority, and of course, quoting Paul, and we may have a conversation, well, actually we probably work like we'll probably run out of time, but there is lots of conversations black theologians have about St. Paul. Colossians 3.22, Ephesians 6.5, he says, slaves obey your masters. And now, of course, lots of argument about what Paul means about that in his context. But of course, whether it's in context or out of context, the point is slaves are meant to obey their masters. And that was what was often preached on plantations by Christian missionaries in the pay of slave masters. All that to say that when... We then get into the late 1960s. James Cohn, who is part of that ongoing tradition, as I said, like myself, a descendant of enslaved Africans, his genius is not to invent black theology, it's to create it into a systematic academic discipline that moves it from being something that has been largely experiential and oral for a number of years into a classified, codified system of ideas and reflections and action that justifies all the attempts of enslaved people to fight white supremacy. What highlights Korn's first book, Black Theology and Black Power, is the utter, at best, paradox and at worst, hypocrisy of much of white Christianity, particularly in the US, where Cohen says, well, it's interesting that when white people were enslaving black people, most white preachers and most white theologians had nothing to say about it. Nothing. When slavery ended, and then Jim Crow came in, this a system of trying to maintain the power of white people over and above people of enslaved, people formerly enslaved, now African Americans, that gets played out in terms of segregation. The church still has nothing to say about it. I should have the white church still has nothing to say about it. And when then there's lynching as a way of white terror in order to reinforce supremacy, even when now the law says that African-Americans have a measure of freedom, they still have nothing to say about it. 
When on the back of the civil rights movement, younger, more, younger, more angry militants like Stokely Carmichael, later Kwame Ture, say, actually, what we need is black power. What we need is a form of self-determination. We need to create our own frameworks and not try to be alongside white people in partnership because they have never been interested in partnership. Cohn says, partnership does not imply equality. The horse and the rider are in partnership, but they're not equal. So the black power movement really tries to move the dial and say, what black people need is self-determination. We cannot work within the frameworks created by white people because that will never allow us to be free. So it's very militant and in many respects it is anti-Christian. All of a sudden now, the same white people who had no problem with lynching, no problem with segregation, no problem with Jim and Jane Crow, it's often called, suddenly now saying, oh yeah, but these black people are anti-Christian. And Colin said, but wait a minute, they're anti-Christian, but like when you were lynching us, that was okay. When we were enslaved, that was okay. So Black Theology and Black Power, his first book, 1969, is where Cohn effectively says, God is revealed through black suffering. God is revealed through black suffering. And the reason why we know this, says Cohn, is because that is the very DNA of the God of the, of the Judeo-Christian tradition. That when we read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, what we see is a God who identifies with Israel, not because Israel are somehow, the people of Israel are somehow intrinsically better, it's because God chooses them because they are small, they're insignificant, and they're often at the prey of larger powers of empire like the Babylonians or the Persians and various other powerful blocks. God says, you are my people because I identify with your marginalization and your suffering. So when they're enslaved in Egypt in the Exodus and God through Moses says, let my people go, what Cohn says is, he says, well, what African-Americans and other enslaved Africans knew when they were finally able to read the Bible for themselves is that this God of the Judeo-Christian tradition doesn't side with the powerful, he sides with the powerless. God doesn't side with Pharaoh, he sides with the Israelites. And then later when you look at the, the prophetic prophets and Jeremiah and Hosea, you still see a God who is prophetically speaking truth to power and critiquing often the status quo and the norms. But most clearly, says Cohen, you see it in the life of the historical Jesus. Let me read you a passage that I guess many of us would have read, and if you're a preacher like me, you probably preached on it lots of times. This is John's account of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. John 18, 28 to 40. Then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate came out to them and said, What accusation are you bringing against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Hold that thought in your mind. This happened so that the word of which, of, of, 
So the word of Jesus, which he had said, indicating what kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Therefore Pilate entered the praetorium again and summoned Jesus and said to him, You are the king of the Jews. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighters, so I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? After saying this, he came out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no grounds at all for charges in his case. However, you have a custom that I release one prisoner for you at the Passover. Therefore, do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they shouted again, saying, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a rebel. Amen. Cohen is one of the first theologians who says, but hidden in plain sight is a clear sense of God's identification with those who are marginalised and oppressed. Jesus himself is an oppressed, colonised Jew. He's in the midst of Roman Empire. The whole of the New Testament is written against the backdrop of imperialism and colonialism. Cohen says, one, therefore, one of the blasphemies that has happened with Christianity in the West, post the conversion of Constantine, and post all the formulations that were made at one of the big early councils in a place called Chalcedon, is that Christianity fundamentally changed its identity. So we, says Cohen in the West, read this text and we imagine ourselves to be Jesus. He says, well, no, we're not Jesus. We are Pontius Pilate. Britain, that had the biggest empire the world has ever seen, is Pontius Pilate. We sent Pontius Pilates all over the world in order to control the natives and to run the affairs for us from our metropolitan capital, London, in the same way that Pontius Pilate is an agent of Caesar and running and controlling Judea and Galilee for Caesar. But Cohen says, but here's the thing, what has happened is that white supremacy has so coloured the way which we think of Christianity, that's how we then end up with the obscenity of slave owners believing that they can own other people, African people as chattel, and somehow God still sanctions it. He says, once Christianity changes its identity and becomes em embedded with power, with political power, its identity changes. So suddenly Jesus of Nazareth, who's a colonized Jew, whose death, yes, all, all the theological symbolism and significance of it, Cohen never disputes. But Cohen says, but part of the scandal, and he says this in his last great book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, published in 2011, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Cohen says, crucifixion and lynching were pretty much the same things. If you simply want to kill someone, a spear to the chest would do it just as well as a bullet to the brain in our context. 
So crucifixion, like lynching, is not about killing people. It's about sending a message of your political power over those you seek to subjugate. So if you crucify someone, firstly, Cohn says, this is a death that you don't kill anyone on crucifixion. You kill those who are seen as the most dangerous agents against the state. So Jesus represents a challenge to Caesar, a challenge to political power, a challenge to existing forms of hegemony. And therefore he has to die. But he doesn't just have to die, he has to die in a way that sends a message to anyone else who has the strange and crazy idea of trying to overthrow existing power and supremacy. So any of you have ever studied anything about the mechanics of crucifixion. No, it takes you days to die. You die in agony. And most times you die because your lungs collapse in on themselves because you can't haul your body up in order to get air into your diaphragm. So it's about suffering and that suffering will be so visceral that everyone else seeing it, as, 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 as we often say in polite terms, it would concentrate the mind. Con says, well, that's what that's what lynching was about. Lynching was never just about killing black people. Lynching was about sending a message to, to formerly enslaved people that white supremacy still stands and the basis of American life, he says, is still on the basis of white power. Therefore, a way of reading the crucifixion is to read it as God's solidarity in Jesus Christ with all those who continue to be crucified and oppressed. So his great book, probably the most important book he ever writes, is 1975 book called God of the Oppressed. And in, in God of the Oppressed, Cohen outlines this fundamental understanding of God who is on the side of those who are marginalised and oppressed. Now, to be clear, Cohen is not a nationalist, so Cohen is not saying that God identifies with black people because we are somehow superior to white people. He says no. He says God identifies with black people because we suffer. Because someone like George Floyd can be murdered simply because he just happened to be in the wrong colour skin. And despite pleading for his life that he can't breathe, he was killed anyway. And let's be clear that the only significant, its only significance is because it was caught on camera. If he wasn't caught on camera, the media no doubt would have delved into his life, found some kind of moral failing and made it his fault that he was killed. That isn't new. That's been done lots of times. The first march I ever went on as a black person in Britain was for the murder of a Caribbean man called Clinton McCurbin in Wolverhampton in 1987. He went into a shop with a supposedly stolen credit card and the shopkeeper called the police and a whole van of police came and they sat on his back and one sat on his neck. Now think about this here. A big 16-stone white man sits on a black person's neck. What do you think is going to happen? And he died. And the coroner judged it death by misadventure. And no one went to jail. No one went to prison. And then later it came out that Clinton McCurbin had been expelled from school and was perhaps actually not the best role model you've ever seen. Well, therefore, he deserves to die. Well, of course he doesn't, but that's the offshoot of white supremacy that still exists in our midst. Cohen's radical work, therefore, is to say that, yes, God loves everyone, but God has a preferential option for those who are marginalised and oppressed. One of the 
fantastic synergies of histories that Cohn and, and, the, and perhaps the inventor of the academic version of liberation theology that comes out of Latin America is a Peruvian priest called Gustavo Gutierrez. And Cohn and Gutierrez never met each other until the mid-70s, and yet across space and time, they're both writing books that are remarkably similar. So Cohn, in 1970, writes a black theology of liberation. In 1971, barely a year later, unbeknown to Cohn, Gustavo Gutierrez writes a book called A Theology of Liberation. And in both, they're pretty much saying the same things. The only difference really is that Cohn is more concerned with race and Gutierrez is more concerned with class. But what they're both saying is that God has a special care for those who are poor and marginalised and are told that they don't matter. And Cohn will call to account the complacency at best and the collusion at worst of those who are not on the side of the marginalised and the oppressed, but those who side with existing power. Going back to that particular reading, hidden in plain sight is the fact that it's the Romans who execute Jesus. In the same way that it's the British who execute Sam Sharp, so, so my parents come from the Caribbean island of Jamaica. And of the six national heroes, one of them is a guy called Sam Sharp. And Sam Sharp's only crime was to lead a strike against the British arguing for his freedom. in 1829. He's eventually executed in January 1831 by the British on the writ coming from London, the equivalent of, of Caesar sending power through Pontius Pilate in order to execute Jesus. And yet we read that text and we imagine ourselves through empire as being analogous with Jesus. No, we're not. We're analogous with Pontius Pilate. So in terms of Cohn's legacy, and he writes a, over a dozen books trying to refine his thinking around what it means for the God of the Judeo-Christian tradition to be a God of liberation, a God of the oppressed, a God who loves everyone but has a special care and attention for those who are told, who are told that they don't matter. I, I want to offer as, as, a, as a conclusion I think, three quick thoughts as to why Cohn's theology still matters. It still matters, says Cohn, for, for me, in terms of Cohn's work, because one of the things that Cohn says that we see in many of our societies, and we perhaps see it in our own society, is this form of what he calls functional atheism. And functional atheism, he says, is where Christians meet and we say our prayers and we do our devotions, but we do it not really believing that God's in the room. Because Constance, if we really thought God was in the room, would we still do the things we do? And would we still make the decisions we do? I've sat in many a meeting, as Methodists like we love a meeting or two. So we've sat in many a meeting because we think it's part of our democratic way in which all the people of God... Are, there are hours and years of my life I will never get back through sat in these meetings. Now, at their best, it's great because we say that power doesn't exist in a particular individual set apart. It exists in the whole people of God, priesthood of all believers and, and all that stuff. I still kind of believe it. 
At its best is that. But at its worst, what tends to happen, it's something like this. We start with our devotions, and of course, you know, being Methodist and being reasonable people, out, they're not too long and not too enthusiastic. So, you know, so we, a few prayers and a little bit of the Bible read, and then we continue. And the minute someone says amen at the start of the prayers, we continue confident in the knowledge that God has left the room that now allows us to do all the things that we really, really want to do under the name of God, but justify it as God when it's really us. Then when we've made our decision, we invite God back into the room to conclude with our prayers, to sanctify all the things that we agreed when God was out of the room, but doing it in God's name. Cohen says if you look at the world and you look at how the church has often colluded with the worst of what it is to be human, often colluded with the worst what is to be human when our scriptures clearly give us an opposite mandate. The only way you can understand it, he says, is that much of what happens is a form of functional atheism. So the first challenge that would come from, from Korn through me, and I say it in my book, is the next time we're doing our collective, however we do it, meeting in our respective churches, how conscious are we that the Holy Spirit is in the room and we will be called to account for what we are doing in God's name. That maybe the death of God movement, says Con, was probably the most honest thing white people have ever done. Because his development in the 1960s came from a very progressive form of white American liberalism that kind of said, well, you know, Maybe like we kind of outlive the usefulness of God. Maybe God has died. Maybe we now are sovereign and we need to run the world responsibly. And as crazy as that idea sounds to some of us, Cohen says, well, maybe that is the most honest thing white people have ever said because really that's what they do anyway. So first challenge. Are we able to face down functional atheism? Second challenge that historically the church has always been much better at social welfare than it has been at social justice. We're very good at sticking plaster stuff. We're very good at helping to manage the breach. What we're not so good at is asking critical questions about skewed systems that oppress particular groups of people. One of the Cohn's great quotes he says is that societies have a way of praising upwards but blaming downwards. If stuff goes well, it's the great and the good who have led us wonderfully. If it goes badly, it's the poor's fault. Think of over 10 years now of austerity politics. And that's punished the poor, who were not the cause of the economic demise in the first place. But they're the one who got the blame. And let's be clear, in a democracy, that the policies were not imposed on us by some godless people who just came and usurped our political processes, we voted for that. So here's the thing, in my own church, we have a food bank, we feed around 10,000 people in the Hall of South Birmingham. Amazing work, and I'm not for one second criticising that we do it. If people are literally suffering with food poverty, then quite frankly what they don't need, like some clever person like me getting up and making a nice, well-tuned lecture around the nature of systemic injustice. What they need is food. So I'm not critiquing that. But here's the thing. Why do we need food banks in the sixth biggest economy in the world? 
Martin Luther King, one of Cohen's great heroes, says, as the church, we are good at being the good Samaritan. We're not so good at asking why the Jericho Road was so dangerous that people got mugged on it in the first place. So the question we have to ask ourselves in a democracy where we often see a preferential option, not for the poor, but for the middle class, where we vote often on the basis of our own self-interest and then try pass it off as Christian discipleship. Whereas last time I checked, the formula for being a Christian was to deny self, pick up the cross and follow Jesus. And pick up the cross, says Cohen, is to be in solidarity with all those who continue to be crucified, both economically and spiritually. So the second challenge very quickly comes in the sense in which when will the church be better able to engage in social justice and not just social welfare? And to risk being unpopular and hated for it. Then one of the things he talks about, and I, I develop it a lot in the book, is this notion of a kind of respectability politics, that what often happens in the church and our Christian discipleship is that the church wants to be liked and Christians want to be liked, and so we embed ourselves into the midst. And we may offer a very ameliorative form of critique, but we never really want to be unpopular, we never really want to be despised and, and rejected, and yet that is the very nature of Jesus' own life and his own crucifixion. Yet we claim to be following in the likeness of Christ. And finally, says, and finally for me, I think the final challenge then becomes the one where Korn started, which is speaking truth to power. And I say this with due humility because I don't believe there's any particular branch of Christianity that is more righteous than any other. So just to, just to say that as a Methodist, like, we like to think of ourselves as somehow being like the more kind of righteous remnant to our Church of England brothers and sisters who sold out to the establishment. And whether that nonsense, that's simply not the case. We are often Anglican wannabes. There are lots of us who would love to be at the top table and feel important like everyone else does. But let's be honest with you. The Christianity that we often see exemplified in this country, even in wonderful temples like this, is a far cry from Jesus of Nazareth. It's a far cry from an oppressed, marginalised Jew living under colonisation. The very thing that we have done to 24% of the world. Often with Christianity, it's a justification. It's David Livingstone, one of the great missionaries in Southern Africa who said the basis of the British Empire is the three C's, commerce, civilization, and Christianity. Christianity becomes the justification for taking other people's lands, but on the quid pro quo that we're also sort of civilizing them. The so-called white man's burden. It's too late to put the genie back in the bottle. We can't pretend that history has not happened and go back and try to pretend that we're Jesus of Nazareth. But at the very least, we still have to ask ourselves the critical question, what does it mean to be a church that's following in the footsteps of one who faced up to the political power of his day 
and ushered in a revolution. Admittedly, a revolution of love, a revolution where you love your enemies, a revolution where you seek to be the best you can be, and life is lived not for oneself, but lived in community for the sake of others. It's not a hint, it's kind of there, obviously. So the challenge Korn says is that when will the church finally stand up and be the church and follow in the footsteps of her Lord and Saviour, an oppressed, marginalised Jew who was alongside all the people who were told that they didn't matter in his day and calls us to do the same. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that Cohn would say, and I would agree with him, is that what we need is a variety of responses, so not just one response. Obviously, one response is the ballot box, but that's just one response. Clearly, clearly prayer is hugely important, that obviously what we believe, and, and one of the things I say about the start of the book, is that Cohn believes in a real God. So when he's sitting down and is writing his books, he believes that God's in the room. Now, here's the thing, obviously, none, uh, that none of, us have a, none of us has a hotline to God. So, you know, I mean, so in my more arrogant moments, I will sometimes think if people just read my books a little bit more, the kingdom of heaven would be that much closer. <laughs> obviously, it would be. Well, obviously, like, you can start by buying the books outside, by the way, I'm just saying. But, you know, but, but we, Black Filter still believes in a God that is still here interceding alongside us. So I think prayer and our liturgies and our way of being churches are still important because they're important about how we discern God's presence. So I don't want to um, underplay that. And certainly in one of Cohen's early book, he writes a book, um, a book called The Spirituals on the Blues, where he looks at music and says music and our cultural, our cultural ways of being people are still important ways because what they do is that like, they free the imagination. And actually, trying to envisage a new world starts with the imagine. Well, it starts with the imagination. I believe that like there's a new world that's possible. But yeah, but pressure groups, um, groups of solidarity, actually even having the humility to say that it, it didn't always depend upon us. Seeing things like citizens, citizens, and other groups that are effectively trying to ask critical questions about how we work in solidarity with each other. So what I would say to local churches is find all the different means by which you can be a sign of resistance to our existing system. And actually, it doesn't matter how few people turn up, that actually what the gospel tells us is that it's only a small number of people who accompany Jesus, but look how they transformed the world. I love the quote from... Um, Desmond Tutu says, if you think you're too small to make a difference, then you've never shared a room with a mosquito. <laughs> and what I love about that, um, um, having shared a room with a mosquito a few months back when I stayed with my dad in Jamaica, is, is that like, the mosquito never bit me, but I knew it was there. And actually, just knowing it was there meant I never slept entirely comfortably because I always had one eye and one ear on the mosquito who I knew was there. And, and actually, maybe sometimes what we can be as a church is simply that irritant that says that we are here, we're not going away. And our job is to remind you that this is not the kingdom that God had in mind.
Yeah, I mean, I think I'd answer that in two words. First, let me just confess that I've done a bit of prison ministry and I was terrible at it. That's not my gift. I just, you know, I mean, the first time I did it, and when the door slammed behind me, I freaked out, I'll be honest with you. You know, I mean, I was there for the day and I kept thinking, oh my God, what if they never let me out? Which makes no sense, because I'm, I'm there as a special guest and I know, but in my, so that's not my gift. But I have taught students and many people who have done that. And I think that's important for two reasons. You're right about the radicalization. But also, let's be honest, that we have a system of justice that is not the worst in the world, but it's not perfect, because we know a disproportionate number of people who are poor with mental ill health, and a disproportionate number of people who are black and Asian end up in prison. So actually, it's, it's often a representation of the worst of our system in terms of how it impacts on the people who are the most vulnerable. So therefore, I think one of the important part of the work is, and certainly my colleague Robert Beckford, who's also much more well-known black liberation theologian than myself, and he's done a lot of work in prisons, he's much better at that, he's much better at that than I am, has been about how you educate people to see that although all of us have a level of agency, all of us have moral choices that we can make, what history and social analysis shows us is that the more you have a sense of self-possession and self-definition is the great, is a greater agency you have. Put it another way, someone who is comfortable and has a strong sense of self doesn't get radicalised. People with poor self-image and with a sense of we know we don't belong, we know no one likes us, and the ones who are all vulnerable because when someone then comes along with a narrative that says, well, actually, no one likes you, but we do, and we will look after you, then that's where things begin to go wrong. So one of the things that I know that some of our black theology colleagues are doing in prison is to conscientize, is to give people a sense of their understanding of themselves as agents in history and to say, actually, a way of understanding ourselves as black people, certainly those who come from the diaspora, is that we come from a long history of people who have survived. We come from a long history of people who have never given in, no matter what's been thrown at us. Therefore, if you build on that legacy, however hard your life is, there are ways in which you can make it better in relative terms. It may never be perfect as you want but there are ways in which we can build on the legacy of Sam Sharp and the legacy of the people who went before us who fought for freedom and fought for dignity and, and fought for a form of um, self-actualisation. <laughs>